tonight, and I've titled this The Great King Over All the Earth, which is the key idea in the study here. Now, not everyone regards Psalm 47 as a messianic psalm in particular, and I will admit that it's not as direct as others, uh, where we have New Testament scripture directly tying back to it as a specific uh, messianic reference point. However, this psalm clearly looks forward to the time when the whole world will be subdued to the divine king. And as we jump forward to the New Testament, we see this truth is clearly applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in reference to his second coming. We know the book of Revelation builds to that point. Whoa, okay, we're already up there, sorry. <laughs> uh, Revelation eleven fifteen says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And ever. And then we see in Revelation 19 16, he has on his robe and then on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And of course, this is in reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's how he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, that fits the emphasis that we find all the way through Psalm 47. So, as a messianic psalm, Psalm 47 looks forward to Yahweh the Messiah as the king. It shows that his kingdom will be universal, extending to the whole world. There'll be no place where you say, well, he's not king here. He doesn't have rule over this domain. No, it will extend over the whole entire world. Now, the scripture presents two basic kingdom spheres related to God. Uh, one is ever-present, and one is yet to come. One is universal, and one is messianic. Uh, by universal, I mean, uh, you know, the, the entire universe in, in this case here. Certainly the Messianic kingdom will be universal too in terms of the entire earth, as I've already said. God is all, always sovereign, and in the sense of sovereignty, God is always on his throne. And he ever rules over all the affairs, over every detail of life. That's true all the time. And as we often say, under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, there's three things we need to know. He permits some things, he prevents some things, and he promotes some things. And as my theology teacher in Bible college told me, you can, you can put every, everything under one of those three categories. Absolutely everything. Uh, all things fit under these categories of permits, prevents, and promotes. But God is ever sovereign over it all. Now, in the sense of God's sovereign, universal kingdom reign, Daniel 4 repeatedly says, The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And so he sets up over it whoever he will. Uh, we see in Psalm 145, 13, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, the whole of history has been moving towards a future messianic kingdom. The overwhelming majority of kingdom references in the Bible are in reference to this literal messianic kingdom in which the Messiah will literally come to earth and literally sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. Now, the kingdom of God is a major theme in the scriptures. I mean, it's major, and it encompasses God's overall master plan. This theme is traced from Genesis to Revelation. And for this reason, 
The kingdom of God has been called the grand central theme of Scripture. Uh, There are a number of themes that you could maybe argue uh, in terms of that, but this is clearly one of them. Richard Mayhew, for example, says, The Bible is, is one book. And had we to give that book a title, we might with justice call it the book of the coming kingdom of God. This is indeed its central theme everywhere. Well, simply put, the Messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament is the same kingdom offered by Christ to Israel in the Gospels and then referred to in the New Testament epistles. It's amazing how something so simple like this can get so twisted as it is spiritualized, and it has been a lot lot in the church age. Well, this same Messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament sees the fulfillment in the book of Revelation at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Messianic kingdom is yet future, and it will be brought in at the return of the Messiah at his second coming. You see, it takes the Messiah to establish it, and he will do so at his second coming. Now, some people think that they're kind of bringing in the kingdom, uh, which is a terrible error. I mean... To think you're bringing in the kingdom is to have way too high a view of yourself. I mean, unless you're able to take the scroll, the title deed of the earth, and unless you are then able to loose those seven seals, unless you're able to send forth the seven trumpet judgments and then the climactic seven bowl judgments as found in the book of Revelation, unless you're able to do that, don't claim that you're bringing in the kingdom because that's what it's going to take. Only the Messiah can bring in the kingdom, and he will. Psalm 47 anticipates the celebration of the Messiah bringing in the kingdom. Uh, We might outline Psalm 47 in this way. The great king over all the earth. Verses 1 through 4, the triumph of the king. 5 through 7, the enthronement of the king. And 8 and 9, the rule of the king. Let's pick it up, beginning of the psalm, Psalm 47. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Here they are again, the sons of Korah. There are 11 psalms attributed to the sons of Korah. Uh, They were of the tribe of Levi. They were the descendants of Korah who conspired against Moses and Aaron and and then was swallowed up by the earth and uh, because of his rebellion. However, his sons were spared. And they became prominent Levitical singers and, and leaders uh, in, the, in the worship in relationship to the nation of Israel, especially during the reigns of, of David and Solomon. Now, they wrote Psalm 45, Psalm 46, Psalm 47, and Psalm 48, which really are all thematically linked. In Psalm 45, we have the marriage of the Messiah King. In Psalm 46, we are called to be still and know that he is God as he brings the whole world into submission. And then in Psalm 47, we have the grand ascent of the king to his throne. And then Psalm 48, Lord willing, next Sunday night we'll look at it. Uh, Psalm 48 presents the glories of the, the great city, the city of the great king, which is Jerusalem. So these four psalms all tie together pretty closely thematically. Uh, So note this, Psalm 45, as I say, the wedding of the Messiah King. Psalm 46, he makes wars to cease. Uh, 47, he ascends the throne. And Psalm 48, the city of the great king. Let's pick it up, verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shall we try it? 
but this is just a preview, what we're doing here. Uh, this is looking forward to a specific context when it says, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Now, Psalm 46 ends with an emphasis on being still. Be still and know that I am God. Notice what it says right before that in verse 9. We're back to Psalm 46 now. Verse 9. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the, the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. He's subduing all these world forces of war. Be still. Be still. And know that I am God. He's going to put the world in its place. So this is kind of how Psalm 46 ends. Be still and know that he is God as he subdues the world. But now, in Psalm 47.1, the call is to loudly celebrate the king ascending his throne. The world has been now put down. And the king is now formally taking his place on David's throne in Jerusalem as he sets up his kingdom. Now, all the people of all the nations going into the kingdom will celebrate this enthronement of the king as expressed in clapping and shouting to God with the voice of triumph, which is to say they are celebrating his triumph and the privilege of them sharing in it. It will be a glorious occasion with thunderous applause and loud shouting as they laud the king ascending his throne in great glory. And I, for one, look forward to being there. Often the Jews would celebrate the enthronement of a new king in this fashion, saying, Long live the king! You thought that started in England, didn't you? No, no. No, no. It goes back in the Old Testament to various references where the king would uh, be installed and they would say, Long live the king! Uh, While at the same time vigorously clapping their hands. Now this celebration here will eclipse them all in terms of uh, celebratory exuberance and expression. Verse 2, why are they celebrating? Why are they clapping and shouting? Verse 2, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. That's why they're celebrating. Most High, Lord Most High is literally Yahweh Most High. Yahweh is God's sacred covenant name, which has the idea of him being unchanging and eternal. God, in terms of his faithful character, never changes. In terms of his attributes, he never changes. In terms of his loyalty to Israel, he never changes. What God is, he always has been and ever will be. He's Yahweh, which is the idea to be. Most high is a title for the one true God of Israel, as often noted in the Old Testament scriptures. It's especially emphasized in Daniel and the Psalms. And and Daniel is an interesting study because... In Daniel, we, of course, have the first part of the book dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. You have these Gentile world powers. And in that context, the emphasis is that he is the most high God who rules. So it's a title for the one true God of Israel. And it speaks of his sovereign power over the nations. This emphasis, as I say, is especially notable in Daniel and the Psalms. Note this reference, for example, uh, uh, Daniel 4, 34, 35. At the time of... At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is, of course, after seven years after he'd been wandering around eating grass, you know, for a while until he figured out what was really real. And uh, he says, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing he does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? I mean, who's going to go to God and say, you know what, God, this is right. What are you doing? What have you done? Nobody's going to straighten God out. Now, when it says here in Psalm 47, verse 2, when it says um, there in verse 2, for the Lord Most High is awesome, uh, this is sometimes translated as to be feared. It suggests that he is to be reverently held in awe because of his greatness. And then it says, he's a great king over all the earth. This is not a local situation. He is a great king in terms of his power and his reign over the entire earth. King is the idea of one who rules with absolute authority and power. And note this combination. This king is great, and he is great because he is the Lord Most High. This king is God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ultimately the Messiah King. But he's also God. And here we have the combination of God and king, which properly defines Jesus. We see this repeatedly in the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, uh, note a prime example. This is a key reference. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. It's coming through David's line. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and all Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name. This is who he is. This is who this, this one that's a descendant of David, who's king. This is, this is his name. This is who he is. His name is his person. This is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord our righteousness. An emphatic statement that this king, who would be of the descendant of the, of the line of David, would be the Lord. Well, at Christ's first coming, the Jews missed this. But they should have seen it. I mean, it was right there in their own scriptures. The Messiah would be a combination of human descendant of David, a king who reigns, and Yahweh God himself, all in one person. Truly, he is awesome. Verse 3, he will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. Now, the Messiah in his position of being Lord Most High will subdue the peoples under the chosen people of Israel. Now, verse 4, as we go on in context, as we go on to verse 4, we clearly see that Israel is in view here. Israel is the kingdom, Israel in the kingdom reign of the Messiah will have the most favored nation status. As they always did until they were put under discipline in the times of the Gentiles. But they will be back on top now in the kingdom. During the times of the Gentiles, which exist from the time of the Babylonian captivity until the second coming of Jesus Christ, during that long duration of time, Israel has been under the nations and continually oppressed by the Gentile nations of the world. And they still are today. I mean, look at their Temple Mount. 
They got a problem with the, the Gentiles there. They got a problem with the Muslims, the Dome of the Rock that's built right on their, their Temple Mount. So just uh, to look, if you can see this here, uh, here is when the, uh, the times of the Gentiles began. We're back here with the, the Babylonian captivity, first siege, uh, 605 B.C. So they had a problem with Gentiles all this time, which Christ says the times of the Gentiles must continue, uh, and it will continue. And Jerusalem will be under, trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled at the end of the seven-year tribulation. This entire period of time, Old Testament, we now come to the New Testament, and all the way through, down through the tribulation period, and at the second coming of Jesus Christ, it comes to a conclusion. And that's where we are in Psalm 47. So the second coming is going to change the current arrangement, where Israel is under. No longer will Israel be under the nations. No longer will Israel, Israel be the tail. Uh, you know, God promised Israel back in the Old Testament for obedience. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are very careful to observe them. But alas, they weren't. And so they got taken from the top position and put underneath the Gentiles during the times of the Gentiles. Alas, Israel did not obey, and so God put them in the underneath position under the Gentiles, and they remained there, as Jesus said, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, which will be at the second coming. Well, this verse clearly shows that in view is the future reign of the Messiah because not all peoples are under Israel today. The nations are not in submission under their feet. This will only be fulfilled when Israel has finally come to repentance and Jesus then comes to deliver and restore them and put them in that most favored nation status once again. Notice what it says, verse 4. <clears throat> he will choose our inheritance for us. <clears throat> inheritance, what God gives. The position that God gives. He will choose our inheritance for us. The excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. Israel is not a self-made people. No one is. But as a nation, they are not a self-made people. When we were in Israel, our guide was Jewish. And he kept talking about everything that the Jews had accomplished. And finally, our Christian guide, we had a guy that was with us, was kind of our Christian guide too. And, and so he finally said to the Jewish guide, how about giving God some of the credit? And Yossi, our Jewish guide, was just quiet. He didn't say anything. And I think that pretty much speaks for most of the Jews today who by and large are secular in their orientation. They don't give God the credit. They think they've done it. But in truth, Israel is a God-made nation. God chose Israel. God has preserved Israel. And God will ultimately restore Israel. Her inheritance is according to God's choosing, according to what God has determined. Now, at this point, when Israel has finally come to repentance in the kingdom, they will give him all the glory and realize he chose our inheritance for us. They haven't put themselves on top. This is God's doing. He subdues the nations under their feet. The inheritance here is thought to be the promised land that God 
promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what God has promised in the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled in the kingdom. The excellence of Jacob can be translated as the glory of Jacob. Elsewhere, God refers to Israel as his glory. God has chosen Israel's destiny to ultimately bring glory to himself. And in a sense, it will be the glory of Israel. Some translate this as the pride of Jacob. I mean, their esteemed position in the kingdom will be a glorious position. And then verse 4 ends with Jacob whom he loves. Nelson's study Bible says to love means to make one's choice in. To make one's choice in. He loves Jacob. You know, we often say, well, why did God pick Israel? And some Jews have said, I wish he'd pick somebody else for a while. <laughs> but uh, Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you. And of course, we want to ask, well, why did he love them? Well, because he wanted to. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And then again in Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. The why is best explained in the fact that God has chosen to love Israel just because of his sovereign prerogative. Uh, no other answer is specifically given. He has chosen to do so. But the reason is not stated other than this is his chosen love. Now, when you are God, you can do as you please, right? Yep. I'm not going to argue with him. You say, well, God, I think I got a little uh, other idea. It might even be a little better. No, no, no. <laughs> better humble yourself and bring yourself way down. Uh, Psalm 135 speaks to this. Verses 4 through 6, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. I mean, this is what God has chosen to do. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. This is in the context of choosing Jacob. He does what he pleases. And this pleased him. He wanted to do it. Okay. He can do what he wants to do. He's God. And then we find here at the end of verse 4, Selah, which denotes a pause. Something like, stop and soak that in. Stop and soak that in. And it's in reference to uh, God's uh, choosing the inheritance for Israel. Uh, the position that they will have. And uh, the glory of Jacob, the excellence of Jacob, this, this glorious position, Selah, stop and think about that. If you're Jewish, you really want to meditate on that for a while. But then we come to verses 5 through 7, which anticipates the enthronement of the king when he comes at the second coming. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now, when Jesus takes the Davidic throne, which is I take what the context is here. When he takes to the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, it will be with great fanfare. He will assume the throne with great celebration and exuberance. People will be shouting. I think I'll be screaming, and you will be too. And the trumpet will be blasting. 
Now, a footnote here. Many in the church, because of verse 5 in the language has gone up, have tied this to the ascension of Christ as he went back to heaven. Some have tied this emphasis to the Ark of the Covenant being brought up to the temple. However, again, because of the entire context here, I think it relates to Messiah God assuming the, the Davidic throne at the time of his second coming. Uh, that would be my view here. Uh, Holman Christian Study Bible. In this psalm, it probably expresses the more general idea of Yahweh ascending his earthly throne. I think that's true. Verse 6. What should we, how should the people respond? Sing! Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. You get it? <laughs> it's going to be a time of singing. It's going to be a song service here for sure. Singing in the Bible is often synonymous with joy. This verse is expressing that on this occasion there will be superabounding joy expressed in the unbounding singing of praises. Now, we often say that when God says something twice in Scripture, like when Christ would say, verily, verily, truly, truly, uh, there's a strong emphasis being made. It's not that Christ had a stuttering problem, right? He didn't. He was just making an emphasis. Truly, truly. Now, when it's expressed three times, like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, it's expressing a superlative emphasis. But I want you to note that for this grand and glorious occasion, the emphasis here is fourfold, which is an extreme rarity in the scriptures. Look, look, break it down. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. That makes the point that this is to be a supreme time of superlative worship, of superlative joy and celebration. And the celebration is all about the enthronement of our God and King. Talk about a special occasion. You know, the world tries to make a big deal when you get a, a, a new king, such as in England or something. You know, it's a big deal. Well, this happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. What a time this is going to be. Are you going to be there? Yes, if you're a believer, you're going to be there. Notice verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. That's what they're celebrating. Sing praises with understanding. Get it. Get the significance of this. The celebration is all about God being the king over all the earth. When it says sing praises with understanding, the word understanding is the Hebrew word maskel. Maskel. Uh, now, this word is found in the title of 13 Psalms. And most believe this word denotes a, 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 the idea of a, a song of contemplation. That is, it is to be sung with deep consideration for what it means, or as it's translated here, with understanding. Now, some take the view that it can also have the nuance of skillful and is therefore translated in the New American Standard, sing praises with a skillful song. So scholars do debate the nuance here a little bit. But to me, the idea of singing praises here with understanding makes sense, pun intended, to me. Uh, the exhortation then at this point is to sing with great appreciation of the truth that our God King has taken his throne to rule over all the earth. That deserves contemplative reflection and appreciation. It deserves worship in spirit and in truth. It is awe-inspiring in terms of a reality. 
The great truth that the Jews could not see was that Jesus was the Messiah who was God come in the flesh. They just couldn't get beyond that. I mean, when Jesus was brought up on Trump charges before Pilate, and Pilate saw right through them, by the way. (laughs) He was a wishy-washy politician. He's trying to keep everybody happy, and he couldn't do it in this situation. But he saw through them, and he said, I find no fault in him. And you know what the Jews said? Here's what they said. Here's their real bottom line problem with Jesus. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die. Why? Why? Because he made himself the son of God. He said, I'm God. That's blasphemy. You got to die for that. They, They just could not accept this. But now... As Jesus has been highly exalted as the God-man above all, the one before, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord over all, this one who will now be worshipped with proper understanding of who he is as truly the God-King. Note this emphasis three times in this psalm. It's a strong emphasis. Lord Most High, Great King. Sing praises to God. Sing praise to our king. God is the king. The reason this is such a grand occasion is because of who is being enthroned. This is not just some king. This is the God king. The Messiah God king. It is the God king who is a great king and who as the people of God, he is our king. And that brings us to the rule of God, the God King. In verses 8 and 9, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Jesus will clearly be recognized as God in that day. And he is, by all true believers, in the act of saving faith, recognized as God even now. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I always think that's an interesting context in Acts 16. You know, you had the... Uh, Philippian jailer, and Paul and Silas were in the inner part of the jail, and they were praying and singing praises. And all of a sudden, at midnight, there's this great earthquake, and uh, the jailhouse rock, and it was rocking, and, and this guy's ready to commit suicide because all the doors were flung open and, you know, just assumed all the prisoners had fled. And, and so, I mean, in those days, if you lost your prisoners, you lose your life. So he's bursting in, and, say, and, and, and Paul's saying, don't harm yourself, we're all here. What must I do to be saved? I mean, there's a phenomenon here where, you ever had an earthquake? I have not, I have been in a little bitty earthquake, you know, an Iowa, Nebraska earthquake. (laughs) It's more like a little tremor. (laughs) But I I remember I had a pastor friend, his his, uh, daughter happened to be out in California and he had an earthquake. It scared her so bad she got on a plane and left that place and said, I'll never go back. It's terrifying. I mean, the, the, you know, the water starts flying around in the swimming pools, and, and it's, it can get crazy. I've never been in a major earthquake like that. But that Philippian jailer, it was pretty traumatic. And he said, believe on the Lord. The supreme power over the earthquake here. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about here in the background. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe on him as our Savior who died for all of our sins. He rose again as our, as our risen Lord. Well, Jesus as God will be the undisputed ruler over all the nations at this point. God reigns over the nations. And he sits on his holy throne. 
Now, when he comes a second time, it won't be in a meek and mild way like it was the first time. The next time he is coming, it will be to take over in a big way. It says in Revelation 19, verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, but with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now I know it's Christmas time, but I just want you to know, Jesus is not a baby anymore. Just saying. I kind of like this uh, meme, right? He's not a baby in a manger anymore. No, not anymore. I praise the Lord he came the first time as he did. My salvation's tied to it, his incarnation. But he's not a baby anymore. The first time he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next time he comes, he's coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah to rule and to reign. To rule with a rod of iron. Indeed, it will be God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. And I take it this will be the throne of David, which rightly belongs to the Messiah, who is the son of David. And from Jerusalem, on the holy throne of David, Jesus as God will rule the entire world. Note these references. In Isaiah 24, 23, the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign. Where? Where is he reigning? On Mount Zion. Where's that at? In Jerusalem. That's where it's going to happen. And before his elders gloriously, in Luke 1, 32, 33, the angel said, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 9. The princes of the people have gathered together. The people of the God of Abram. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Moody Bible commentary says the Hebrew terms translated princes literally signifies willing ones used to describe Messiah's people. These are the people of the world who have been humbled under the great truth of the God King, who is Jesus, and are now gathered in willing worship before him. And these have become the people of the God of Abraham. All have come to know and appreciate the God of Abraham, who is the one true God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, you know, when we trace what we, where we are as God's people, we really go back, you know, it depends how far you want to go back here, but a key place is the, the time of the Abrahamic covenant. The God of Abraham is the God who entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham. And through this covenant, God promised that in Abraham, ultimately through the Messiah, who would come through the line of Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's you, and that's me. The blessing of Abraham, justification by faith, comes to the Gentiles who come to faith in Christ as well. And because of this, Paul says in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. You tie into the Abrahamic covenant promise. In a spiritual sense, all people of saving faith are Abraham's spiritual seed, 
In this sense, Paul in Romans 4.16 says, Abraham is the father of us all who are people of faith. Now here they are in the kingdom. The willing ones who have submitted to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are gathered and all united together as the people of the God of Abraham. All sharing in the same saving faith and the blessings of it. The word shields metaphorically speaks of those who are leaders of the nations. Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. All the world's leaders left standing will be those who now belong to the God of Abraham. And they are humbled before the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is now to be greatly exalted. What a glorious psalm about our coming God King, who is Jesus Christ. He will come in triumph, verses 1 through 4. He will come to be gloriously enthroned, verses 5 through 7. And he will come to rule over all the earth with all the leaders subdued before him. Bible knowledge commentary. To those who believe in him, the confidence that the truths of this psalm will be fulfilled brings forth comfort and encouragement during distressing times. And it does. This is a tremendous psalm. And there's a tremendous emphasis on praise in Psalm 47. As the Messiah is celebrated as the God King who has come to reign. There is a very special praise word that I think is often used lightly, which is really, if it's used lightly, it's almost a form of taking the Lord's name in vain. And I'm talking about the most high, the most high praise word that we have in the Bible. And you know what that word is, right? It's the word hallelujah. That's right. Uh, this word hallelujah literally means praise Yahweh. Hallel means praise. We've got a number of psalms called the Hillel Psalms, the, the praise psalms. And Yah means God. It's a combination of those two words. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. This praise word is saved for the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know the creation of the world? You know that creation of the world? That was really an incredible occasion. The angels sang for joy, but it's not recorded that they used the word hallelujah. The children of Israel in the Exodus, they sang exuberantly at God's deliverance, as we see in Exodus 15. But no mention of the word hallelujah. When Solomon completed the temple, it was a time of great celebration and worship. But no mention of them using the climactic praise word Hallelujah. At the birth of Christ, the angels burst out in praise to God. But no mention of the word hallelujah. At the resurrection of Christ, there was exuberant joy and celebration. But no mention of the word hallelujah. It's as if God saved this word. In terms of the revelation that we are given, it's as if God saved this word hallelujah for the grand and glorious occasion of Christ's second coming as he comes to reign in power and glory as the God King who rules over all. You see, we are first introduced to this word hallelujah in the last book of the Bible. It's saved for the book of Revelation and it's saved for the end of the book of Revelation. It's saved for the context of the second coming of Jesus Christ where it's found four times in Revelation 19, 1 through 6. So let's look at it together. Revelation 19, 1 through 3. 
After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And then it continues. Verses 4 through 6. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen! Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, many Niagara Falls, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. It's Christmas time. And we commonly sing the song, Joy to the World. You know, we sing it about Christ's first coming, but really that song is about Christ's second coming. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Yes, when the Savior comes to reign... It's going to be a climactic time of hallelujah celebration. For all of God's people, we have a lot to look forward to. Indeed, the best is yet to come. Stay tuned. The kingdom is about to come into full view. And the celebration will begin. Hallelujah. Let's stand and have our closing song.